Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 78? Psalm 78. As you're turning, I'm going to give you a crash course on the Psalms this morning. All right. I don't want you to think the Psalms were just haphazardly put together. Okay. If my memory serves me correctly, when me and Jessica were dating, I made her a mixtape. Y'all remember doing that? And when you make a mixtape for someone special, you just don't pick, you know, the top ten songs on the billboards. You pick very particular songs, and you put them in very particular order. The Psalms are no different. These Psalms are placed here in a way for a reason. Now in book 3, which is where we're at in the Psalms, it looks forward to the fall of the Davidic monarchy. It's looking forward to a catastrophic event in Israel's history. That's in Psalm 89. How does Psalm 78 factor into that reality? And how does it factor into our life today? We're going to just pick that up in our sermon in a sentence. God keeps his end of the bargain. God keeps his end of the bargain. Let's pray. We'll jump in. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word today because you are faithful. And I pray that you would pour out your spirit that this word would be an effectual means of building us up in both comfort and holiness. Father, would you be with me as I speak and us as we hear that we may be forever changed. Father, I ask these things in your son's most precious name. Amen. Okay, we're going to start on verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord in his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. 
in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zon. He divided the, he divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime he led them with a the cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still the more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rocks, the waters gushed out, and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sands of the sea. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, well filled, where he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues, their hearts. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zon. He turned their rivers to blood 
so they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hell and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hell and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn of Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep. He guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. He delivered his power to captivity. He gave his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. For following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. And with an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. Thus ends the reading of God's word this morning. That's a lengthy psalm. And I debated whether we should read the whole thing. But I grew up listening to Paul Harvey. Do y'all remember Paul Harvey? We need to hear the rest of the story. And when we read our Bible, it's a giant. It is a story. You know, I've said it before and I've said it, I'll say it a hundred more times. This Bible is what we call a covenant. What is a covenant? It's an agreement between two parties 
with certain obligations and promises. And part of each covenant is what we call a historical prologue. It says, how did these two parties get to this point? It tells the story of how they met. Think about going to a wedding. It's very popular now. You go to a wedding, and typically in the foyer of the church, you will see a table, and you'll see pictures of them as babies, and in kindergarten, and in high school, and then their first date, and when they got engaged, and then you'll see a picture of them from then, from right now. And what that is trying to do is it's giving you a historical prologue. It's telling you a story. How did these two people come to this point? The whole Bible functions that way for us. And this psalm in front of us serves as a historical prologue. How did we get from Genesis 12 to David? It tells us something important. So as we read this text this morning, we're going to review that story. It's our story. We do this in our lives. Me and Jessica have an embarrassing photo album in the uh, closet. My hair is way too long and her hair is way too short. They're the same length at the time. It was quite a, quite a time in our life. And occasionally, we'll get it down. We'll look at it. And it reminds us of where we've been. Because where you've been will largely dictate where we're going. So we're going to look at this story, and we're going to see that God and man are in covenant, that there are obligations for God and for us. And we're going to see that God keeps his end of the bargain. Okay? God keeps his end of the bargain. So as we look at this story, let's first ask, what does Israel remember? What does Israel remember? Israel remembers that God keeps his end of the bargain. You know, if a covenant has obligations, God must be faithful to his obligations. We see this in Abraham. God promised Abraham three things. Land, seed, and blessing. I'm going to give you a land, Canaan. I'm going to bless your seed. They're going to be more numerous than the stars of the heaven. And you're going to be a blessing to the world. Did God keep that promise? You betcha. God says, hey, 430 years, you're going to be in a foreign land, and then when you come out, I'm a, you'll have lots of kids, and you'll be in, I'll take you to a land. 430 years almost to the day, God brings them out of Egypt. A multitude beyond number. He guides them through the wilderness. As we read in our psalm, he split open rocks and gave them water. He gave them manna. He defeated their enemies. He brought them to the promised land. And he made them a blessing. I think God was faithful. I think God kept his end of the bargain. But it goes deeper than that. Jesus in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 22, he's arguing with the Sadducees about the resurrection. And Jesus says, God is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. 
And he ain't the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Let's think about this for a minute. First, we see that God kept his promise. He is a God to Abraham and his children. Second, we see that if God and Abraham are going to be in a relationship, if they're going to dwell in God's holy heaven together, Abraham's sins must be forgiven. He must be, as we would call it, justified. They must be reconciled. Okay. Justification. Well, every time you're just, when you are justified, you're also sanctified. Those whom God saves, God sanctifies. He makes you more holy. Did he do that for Abraham? Let's think for a minute. Genesis chapter 12, God makes his grand promise. Abraham gets a little hungry. He goes down to Egypt and he says, oh, by the way, that's not my wife. I don't want y'all to kill me. I don't believe God will take care of me. That's my sister. I don't consider that a very holy person. But in Genesis chapter 22, God says, hey, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and Abraham's obedient. That is Abraham growing in holiness. That is him growing in his trust and obedience to God. We call that sanctification. So he's justified, he's sanctified. Is he glorified? Well, he's in heaven. He's reigning in glory. I call that being glorified. God was faithful. God kept his end of the bargain. But what about Israel? What about God's people? God obligated himself to be their God. Therefore, they are obligated to be his people, to be faithful to his covenant, to believe his word. Did that happen? Well, when we read our psalm, we see they're stubborn and rebellious. They sinned against God. They tested God. They did not believe in God nor in his saving power. In a word, they committed the worst sin. The sin of forgetfulness. They forgot their end of the bargain. And they forgot the God who keeps his. And this is a quandary of Psalm 89 that I alluded to earlier. Okay? God made a promise to David. He said, your offspring will always sit on the throne. But if... They transgress my law. But if they are unfaithful to their end of the bargain, I will punish their iniquity. And the end of Psalm 89 shows that the throne is in shambles. The crown is laid in the dust. The Davidic monarchy lives no more. And they ask the question, What now? We have been unfaithful. We have sinned against God. What now? God keeps his in the bargain and we do not keep ours. Then what? What does God do at that point? That is the question this psalm is asking. That is the question this section of the psalms is asking. What next? Does God wash his hands? Does God shred the contract? 
Does God put a void stamp on it? What does God do? And our psalm paints a pretty accurate picture. God continues to keep his end of the bargain. God continues to keep his end of the bargain. In Jeremiah 14, the people say, God, we acknowledge our wickedness. We have sinned against you. And they had. Do I need to name the sins of David's sons? Do I need to talk about Solomon and his many wives? Jeroboam and the golden calves at Dan and Bethel that they worshipped? Manasseh and his idols? We could go on. They were not faithful. But Jeremiah 14 goes on. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. God, we have not kept our end of the bargain and we know it. Please keep yours. When we are faithless, would you remain faithful? When we have shredded God's contract, when we've thrown it behind our back, when we've dumped it in the trash, He does not forget us. In fact, He says that your names are engraved on the palms of my hands. And we know this, don't we? What does Paul say in Romans 5? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for those who have not kept their end of the bargain. That God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. And Jesus Christ came, born of Mary, born of the lineage of David, as the heir of David, the true faithful shepherd, the good shepherd, to sit upon the throne. And he laid down his life. As fully man, he kept our end of the bargain in our place. God demands perfect righteousness from us, and we have failed to deliver. But Jesus Christ kept it in our place. But as fully God, his death was of such value to pay the greatest debt of sin. As fully man, he earned our righteousness. As fully God, he paid our debt. His life and death are more valuable than all the righteousness of this world put together. And he did it for us because God keeps his promises. And don't we understand this? When I worked for Westminster doing youth down in Vicksburg, I took them to the Okatoma. Probably the first and last time I'll ever do it. We had teenagers, had two teenage girls that wanted to be in the canoe together. And they knew that they were obligated to paddle the length of the Okatoma. They made it about a quarter of the way down the Okatoma. They got tired. They ran into every tree, every bush. They complained. They hated each other. <clears throat> so what did I do? I had a nice, strong, beefy man in the boat with me. Well, we split up. And one little girl got in my canoe. 
And the other little girl got in his canoe. She was not much help. I'm just going to tell you to start with. But what did I do? Did I say, look, you knew you had to paddle, paddle all this, then you just get out of the boat and walk home. Did I throw her overboard? Did I, you know, did I abandon her? No. I paddled harder. And when I got home that day, I could not take my shoes off. It came with them. I put in the extra effort. Even though she did not keep her end of the bargain, I was going to keep mine. Because I was obligated to get all of those children to the end. Now we see the same thing in the Bible. Luke 15, Jesus says, hey, 99 sheep are at home and one goes away. And what does Jesus say? He rejoices as he carries that one home on his shoulders. In Isaiah 40, God talks to a wayward Israel and he speaks words of comfort. And he says, he will tend them like a shepherd. And you know, it doesn't say that God will carry us like an angry child like this, kicking and screaming. Uh, if you're carrying a kid like this, somebody's getting a spanking when they get home. No. It says he carries us in his bosom. In the place of deepest tenderness. That when we do not keep our obligations to be faithful to him, he keeps his obligation to be faithful to us. That is something we need to hear today. I cannot say it enough. God has bound himself to us with many great and precious promises. God has bound himself to us. He upholds his covenant. He fulfills his end of the bargain. Now what does that mean for us? As Israel looked back and remembered what God had done, I asked, what do we remember? What do we remember? First, we need to repent of old sins. If you read the psalm, you notice Israel kept falling into the same trap. They forgot, they rebelled, they provoked, they were punished. Over and over, the Bible calls us to repent and believe. These are the side, two sides of the same coin. Many of us continue living in the same sins, presuming on God's mercy. There is nothing more dangerous in the world than to presume on God's mercy. And you can hear, you know, the Israelites saying, Oh, well, we're sons of Abraham. We're good. We can whine. We can complain. We can sin against God. We're good. And we see where that led, didn't it? The Pharisees said the same thing. They flattered God with their mouths, but their hearts were far from Him. And they didn't make it in the promised land. It's a dangerous thing to presume on God's mercy. To say, I can be an adulterer, a liar, a thief. I can engage in pornography and eight million other sinful things. It's okay. I put my rear end in a pew and a check in the plate. I'm fine. That's not how it works. 
over and over. God says, the ones I save, I sanctify. Paul says, God wills and works in us. That the Spirit sanctifies us. And then he calls us to make our calling and election sure. Do not wake up at the great throne of judgment and hear God say, I never knew you. Do not presume on the mercy of the Lord, but repent and believe. Secondly, we must remember old mercies. We must remember old mercies. This book only teaches us two things. What man is to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. This book is a historical prologue to our life. Abraham is our father in the faith. His story, Israel's story, Jesus' story is our story. And this book testifies to God's faithfulness. Listen. Fear, anxiety, doubt. The root of this is unbelief. We don't believe God will keep his end of the bargain. Guilt, shame, condemnation. The root of these is unbelief. God has promised to save all who come to him. And we don't believe God will keep his end of the bargain. Samuel Rutherford says, We are apt to believe in God's promise as long as the book is in our hands. But when we lay it down, we forget. Treat this book like I treat that photo album. Take it down. Read it. Look at it. Remember God's mercies and your mistakes. Your foibles and His faithfulness. Remember all the times you blew it. But God kept His end of the bargain. We are called to remember old mercies. Finally, church, I leave you with this. Rise and tell. Rise and tell. The first four verses of this psalm are a declaration of intent. Fathers telling a coming generation. Verses 59 and 60 following tell of a story in 1 Samuel. When God abandoned Shiloh and allowed the ark to be captured by the Philistines. Why? Eli, a father did not tell his sons of God and their obligations to him. They sinned against the Lord. They did wicked things. And God punished the nation because of the failure of a father. Churches, communities, and countries are all comprised of families. And families are led by fathers. If we want to see a turnaround in our church, our community, and our country, it doesn't begin by more ministers and missionaries, more degrees and dissertations. It begins with fathers who tell a coming generation. We need fathers that tell of a God who keeps his end of a bargain. 
And we need fathers who keep their own end. You see, Jesus says in John chapter 3, we speak of what we know. We often do not tell a coming generation of God's past faithfulness because we do not know. Do we know how God has kept his end of a bargain? Do we know in a word of Jesus Christ? Do we speak of him? If not, it may be because we do not know of him. Now more than ever, God, people need to be told of God's past faithfulness that we may persevere in this present pandemic. Where are the ones who will keep their end of the bargain and rise and tell a coming generation of the God who has kept his end of the bargain? Let us pray. Great and mighty things, Father, you have done great and mighty things. As John says at the end of the book of John, if we were to write them all down, the world could not contain all the books it would require to tell of your faithfulness to us. Father, day by day, especially today, give us a clear vision of what you have done and let us rise and tell. Store these things in our heart. And let us practice them in our lives. Father, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing one last hymn.